Welcome to, I'm pretty sure this is episode number four, if my mind is not deceiving me. Mm -hmm. Um, And the first three, we really talked about the gospel and then the false gospels uh, that the world has created. And today we're going to start, I would call it a series on maybe my favorite uh, doctrines of the Bible, um, the doctrines of grace. And so if you know anything about the doctrines of grace, you are aware that they can be called the Calvinistic doctrines, the Reformed doctrines. Um, they can be described using the acronym TULIP, um, but there's five doctrines of grace. And so today we're going to talk about the first doctrine of grace, which is called total depravity. Um, kind of as a, as a preface to this this series, it would be a five-part series, obviously, and maybe we'll split some of these doctrines into multiple podcast episodes just because they're so, you know, deep and so highly debated, and there's just so much wrapped up in these things historically, too. Uh, nonetheless, though, like, um, maybe the biggest divide doctrinally in the church is the divide on these doctrines. And so kind of as a historical... Um, yeah, preface to this, uh, when the Reformation took place, um, you know, Martin Luther being, you know, the first reformer, uh, it was a Reformation back to the Bible, really, to the truth of the Bible, to the doctrine of the Bible, to the, the Bible being our ultimate authority and bedrock for everything that we do in our faith. So it was a Reformation back to the Bible. And so when we talk about Reformed doctrine, we're talking about biblical doctrine. We're talking about what we, what we see to be clearly taught in the scriptures. Um, and so uh, Martin Luther was, we would call him today like somebody who believed in reformed doctrine, obviously, because he was the, the father of the Reformation. Uh, he wrote more about predestination than Calvin ever did. Uh, but then Calvin became really kind of the known one for what we would call the doctrines of grace. So he wrote in his book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, really uh, what he thought to be the fundamental doctrines to, to the Christian faith, what everybody needs to know. He wrote it more as like a, a general overview of what biblical doctrine really is. It's, it is really, his book really is kind of like a, a systematic theology book. Like this is what believers should, should know, and this is what is clearly taught in the Bible. Uh, and so those then, really the, the truths that he defended in, in his book kind of became to be known as, as the doctrines of grace or the doctrines of Calvinism. Uh, but they weren't, Tulip, the five points of Calvinism, weren't developed until after uh, a certain man uh, disagreed with Calvin's doctrines or what he defended from Scripture, and he formed the five points of Arminianism uh, after his name. Uh, his last name was Arminianus, I believe. Uh, you could correct me if I'm wrong on that. But nonetheless, he f- formed the five points of Arminianism uh, to combat these reformed Calvinistic doctrines um, and these five points of Arminianism uh, were you know, heavily disagreed upon by the reformers. And then to combat those five points of Arminianism, the Calvinists came back or the reformed the theologians came back with came back with the five points of Calvinism, and then the five points of Arminianism kind of just fell away from history, and now we're left with the five points of Calvinism. And so everybody 
really kind of uh, has an understanding of the five points of Calvinism or, or, or has heard that before. Nobody really hears about the five points of Arminianism. But just to kind of show you this big divide, they're actually, I mean, they're, they're completely contradictory to one another. They're, they're totally opposite. So uh, what, you know, the first doctrine of Calvinism, total depravity, uh, says the first point of Arminianism would be the absolute opposite of that. Uh, so they're, they're opposed to each other. So these two things really are, uh, Arminianism and Calvinism, they're very opposite things. You can't, you can't uh, mix the two. They'd be they're logically incohesive in that sense, but the doctrines of Calvinism are logically cohesive with each other. The doctrines of Arminianism are logically cohesive with with each other, if that makes sense. But as a, if you compare two of them, they're not. They're totally contradictory to each other. So, really, what that means is if if Calvinism is right, Arminianism is wrong. If Arminianism Arminianism is right, Calvinism is wrong. It's just the way it is, using logic and reason. Um, and so we really want to look at Scripture to see what what is right. Uh, what does Scripture defend? What does the Scripture say uh, is true? And and we, Adam and I, totally believe, um, very convictedly, that that the doctrines of grace, uh, you know, you could say the five points of Calvinism are biblical. They're, they're seen in the Bible. Um, and Kelvin, he would have never considered himself a Calvinist. That's just doesn't make, even make any sense. He just wrote what he saw in Scripture. But now, you know, we attribute uh, those doctrines that he defended from the Bible. Call them Calvinism. We give them a name. But they don't have to be. It doesn't have to be Calvinism. Right. <laughs> I mean, even, even, the, even the way, like, the names that he has for the doctrines, many of them are really poorly named when you actually look in the oh, scripture. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know. Um, right. Predestination is not a good name for the doctrine. Um, so, you know, we can spend some time talking through that. Right. Because I think that. people get hung up on oh, yeah. on just the name. The name, yep. Yeah. Exactly. So that's kind of like a historical preface to this series on the doctrines of grace. And I tell you what, though, the doctrines of grace, uh, just to lay them out, you know, we'll use Tulip as the guideline and we'll talk about the naming of them, maybe what would be a better name for each of these. But the first one is, you know, the T, total depravity. Uh, the next one's the U, unconditional election. The next one's the L, limited atonement. Then you have the I, irresistible grace. And then the P, perseverance of the saints. So those are the doctrines of grace, those five amazing doctrines. And for me personally, those are the doctrines that I most rest in. They give me the most comfort. They give me the most peace. They give they 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 uh, bring me into the deepest states of worship. Um, they have been the greatest help to my personal walk in Christ. Um, I love the doctrines of grace. Absolutely love them, and it somewhat burdens me when people disagree with them because I uh, I personally believe that that cuts them off from a a, a level of worship or or. A level of like awe that you can have of God and His sovereignty, um, which burdens me because I, I want people to experience this depth of worship. Um, I want people to be in awe of God and who He is and how He works and how He saves people. And um, I think if you disagree with the doctrines of grace, it does kind of cut you off from a level of worship 
because it, it kind of takes away from God's sovereignty and God's mystery and and His power and and just His infiniteness, if that makes sense. Like how His mind is working at at a capacity that I just can't understand. He's He understands things that I can't understand, and there's a lot of mystery in in the doctrines of grace. There really is. Uh, because God is an infinite God, and if I was to understand an infinite God, then that means I would have to be infinite, which means I would have to be God. And I'm not God. Uh, and I'm finite. So that means there's a lot of stuff that I just can't understand. God dang it. <laughs> <laughs> I've been talking a lot. What do you want to say, Adam? Sorry. Well, I, think, <laughs> I think one thing that um, that you hear come up a lot is... Uh, and, you know, we'll talk about this a lot more when we talk about election, is, well, it's just not fair. Yeah. Um, it's not fair. People people are like, well, a, a loving God can't be that way. Uh, and I think that that comes, with, comes into a knee-jerk reaction uh, to some of the texts that are very hard, which... We'll talk about um, Paul covers uh, election very thoroughly uh, in in the book of Romans, and uh, I've spent a lot of time studying the book of Romans over the last couple of years, and mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> you know we can we can dig into it, and I think some things will will come to reveal, um, but at the end of the day, we we have to bow before before God. And we'll talk about that today when we talk about total depravity. Why do we have to bow before God? Um, I think the other thing that comes up a lot as a big as a big counter argument against these doctrines is uh, is, is is this idea of experience. Uh, and again that 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 relates to election, but this all starts with answering the question, can mankind seek God apart from God? Right. That's, that, and, and that's why you know, we have to answer that question first. Like you said, both Calvinism and Arminianism, they start with, the, with answering the question, can mankind seek after God without God? Right. And so the, the topic of total depravity comes first. And so really, uh, I think the other big argument against these doctrines rests on uh, on the idea that when people have a conversion experience, they say, I made a choice, and they can't reconcile their making a choice right. with God's sovereignty. Right. And so um, I think that there's that there's two parts with that. One is that's very, something that's very difficult to understand. Absolutely. And uh, you know, certainly we'll we'll spend a lot of time discussing that when we talk about election. But number two, I think it's um, it's the pride that that vexes us all, right? It's it's that it's that prideful sin, yeah, that puts us in a place where we think that we are holier than we are. Yeah, and that's. So I say all of that about election. Oh yeah. To wrap it back into to total gravity. depravity. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, because the two point at each other, but it all starts at total. Oh yeah. Depravity. These I mean these doctrines guys are so logically cohesive. They work together. If one domino falls, they all fall type of thing here. 
that makes sense. Um, they're so wrapped up in each other, and, and you, you, you see each doctrine and, and the other doctrines, if that makes sense, too. Like, they're just, they're just, a, they're, they're a group. They make sense together. They're scriptural, they're biblical, uh, and they're amazing. Um, and, like, exactly what Adam was saying, we got to realize, uh, I mean, and this kind of will probably segue into total depravity, that the Bible teaches that sin affects every bit of us. It affects our, our wills, it affects our minds, it affects our emotions, it affects our our intuitions, our desires, our affections. It affects every part of us. Uh, and, and that's kind of what we mean by total depravity. We're totally affected by sin. And, and one of the, uh, you could say, the rebuttals against total depravity is, well, you know, I'm not Hitler, or I'm not as bad as I could be, or blah, 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 blah. Like, I could be worse. I'm actually pretty good. It's like, yeah, you are not as bad as you could be, but that's not what total depravity is teaching. Total depravity is teaching you are totally, every part of your being, your mind, your will, your emotions, everything is affected by sin. Uh, and so the Arminian doctrine would say, like, maybe your, maybe your reason or your... your your ability to reason or your mind, let's say, is not affected. Maybe, yes, your, your, your emotions and your, uh, your affections or your heart is affected by sin and you, you have wicked thought or thoughts or, or wicked uh, feelings or blah, 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 but your mind is unaffected in the sense that you can reason yourself to come to know what is true. So you could, you could take the facts of Scripture, you could take the Bible, uh, and you could use that to reason yourself to, to you know, choose God, if that makes sense. Where we would say, the Bible says, no, your mind is affected by, by sin as well, by the fall as well, and you actually can't even reason yourself uh, to the point of accepting Christ or submitting to Christ. Certainly you could believe intellectually these, these true things about God, um, but it's not going to bring you to a point of total submission underneath the will of God. Um, and so the, the Catholic teaching... Uh, uh, there are Arminian teaching, because really Arminianism, uh, kind of histor historically too again, uh, Protestantism or Evangelicalism reformed out of Catholicism, uh, back to the Bible. But then what happened is then the Arminians, what they did is they kind of, they went back and they adopted again certain Catholic doctrines and certain Catholic teachings. Uh, and so Arminianism really is a drift back to Catholicism. Uh, rather than a true Protestant or evangelical faith. Uh, and some of you listening to this who maybe w would identify as Arminians might be offended that I'd said that. Said that. <laughs> but that's the case. That's kind of historically, if you look at the doctrines, that's the case. It really is Arminians, they go back and they readopt the Catholic teaching of free will. Uh, and really Thomas Aquinas was the, really the pioneer of, of saying that our reason our ability to rationalize hasn't been affected by sin and we have that ability to rationalize and, and come to interpret things correctly um, so all that to say though we believe the Bible teaches that every part of us is depraved is affected by sin and in God's and we'll, we'll dig into this in Romans 1 too but uh, part of God's common grace on humanity is that he restrains humanity from going as wicked as they could go 
So you can think of it as like we have a, like we've talked about, we have a Rottweiler underneath our feet right now mm-hmm. <laughs> named Thunder. And, you know, there's certain uh, beliefs about Rottweilers. <laughs> and as you think of like a rabid dog, like hooked up to a, hooked up to like a, you know, one of those chain, you know, chains to the ground is just like slobber everywhere, barking, ready to rip somebody's head off. Like you kind of picture a Rottweiler or a pit bull. <laughs> so we have thunder underneath us. He's actually kind of a baby. Yeah, <laughs> he's yeah. not that at all. He's so afraid, we, yeah. afraid of everything and he's just content to lay and chew on his yeah. bone. Nonetheless, you know, he's the type of dog people picture as a rabid, you know, ready to sick somebody dog connected to a, you know, a chain to the ground and a, you know, a dirt pit, whatever it is. That's what I think of. And you can just imagine, we're this dog, we're this rabid dog, we just, you know, we want to just go where we want to go, we want to be consumed by our passion and go, you know, just totally pursue our sinful flesh. And God is is restraining us with this chain hooked to the ground, and we, you know, we pull against it, we pull against it, we pull against it, but His common grace is restraining us, is restraining us, is restraining us. But sometimes... He goes, you know, you want to go that way? You want to go there? I'll let you go there. And he, and he cuts the chain or he lets go of the reins, so to speak. And he lets us go where we want to go. And when we, we're, when we get to go where we want to go, we, get, we go down to deeper forms of sin, deeper wickedness. And you can see that progression in Romans 1. He gives us over to our the lust, our lust, our immoral lust. He gives us over to dishonorable passions. He gives us over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. We just, we just keep going and going and going. And, and that's where you see somebody like a Hitler or a Stalin or a Mao or all these wicked people. It's like, you know, you could, so, you could say, God, let go of the reins and let them go where they wanted to go. And when he lets them go, then they're going to be wicked. And so... Basically, part of total depravity is is that don't think of yourself so highly. You are wicked, and you would do these things, and you would be sick and vile. Um, but God is restraining you by His common grace, and it's amazing that God restrains so many people so that we can actually function in an in a ordered civilization in some sense. Uh, but when we kind of tug on the chain hard enough, He might let us go where we want to go. And that's really a form of judgment because deeper levels of sin always results in destruction. Mm-hmm. So we really kind of destroy ourselves, uh, and it's a form of judgment on that sin. So yeah. yeah, yeah, I think you know when when we use the word depraved or depravity, uh, you know, we get this image of you know like. Like a pig rolling around in the in the filth. Oh yeah, you know, or, or you know, when it comes to people, we think of, well, Hitler was obviously entirely depraved. <laughs> um, you know, serial killers like Charles Manson or the yeah. Golden State Killer, yeah. like like Ted clearly, Bundy. yeah, these <laughs> these people are are depraved, and and so we we look at it and we're like, well, if that's the standard of depravity, right. Um, I, I'm not that. Yeah. And, well, certainly, you know, um, that, that point is conceded. Um, but it's not, what I would say is that we're using the wrong standard. Absolutely. If we're judging ourselves by the most evil people, then we can make a lot of concessions for the sin that we commit. But if we, uh, we, we need to 
judge ourselves by the holy standard, which is a message that Christ delivered himself. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and when we judge ourselves by the holy standard, then all of a sudden we can't justify any of the sin that we commit. And that's where total depravity becomes clear. It's not like it's not that we're trying to say that everybody is Ted Bundy. Right. What we're trying to say is that nobody is God. Right. Right. Absolutely. So, what was I going to say? Totally forgot what I was going to say. Um, I don't know, but I think we start in Romans. I think, yeah. So, a little preface on Romans. Uh, we're going to be in Romans a lot in this series on the doctrines of grace. Uh, primarily Romans. We'll, we'll dabble in Ephesians, certainly. Probably dabble in the Gospel of John. Um, and other epistles, certainly. And uh, you actually see, you could say you see these doctrines of, of election and, and God's sovereignty and, and man's depravity also very well explained in the Old Testament a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll, we'll be in there as well. But Romans is kind of our, you could say it's our anchor point. It's kind of where we're going to always yeah. go back to. I'll, if I can give some background on that Please too. do, yeah. For, in case you're not familiar with, with Romans... There's there's really a couple of reasons why Romans is the linchpin for so much of of these discussions. It's not that Romans is the only place that discusses this. Right. It's that Romans is the place that's discussed it in where Paul discusses it in its most exhaustive forms in Scripture. Right. Um, and the reason for that is because Paul had never been to the Church of Rome. So, you know, unlike the Church of Philippi, for example, or the Church of Thessalonica, where Paul planted those churches, he was there, he preached, he taught there. Paul did not have that opportunity in Rome when he wrote this letter to the Romans. So Romans is unique in that form. And so uh, Romans is a biblical version of systematic theology because Paul is trying to teach the Romans everything that they need to know about the Christian faith Without having ever been there. Right. And so he's covering so many of these topics. And Romans, uh, I, I like to tell people, Romans hinges on, on three chapters within the book. Um, and and chapter three is one. So Paul does an introduction in Romans one. Yep. Uh, and you know, he, then he tells them how much he wants to see them. And then from halfway through chapter one, all the way through the end of chapter three, it is all about how depraved how sinful mankind is right, right. before a holy god right and uh then he transitions out of that and he, and then ends up in a place uh, okay so what about faith yep. he starts asking those questions and then he ends up in chapter eight where he begins his his exhaustive teaching on election yep and then in chapter 12, there's a big shift in the whole tone of the book. Right. Now it's like application. That, yeah, that talks about application. How to live the Christian life. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, I've um, – absolutely. T- kind of to build on that too, it's like exactly what Adam's saying. Like he's never visited the the the, the Church of Rome. Uh, he's never really seen these Roman Christians. So, you know, he, he gives some greetings at the very end of chapter 16. So you could say maybe he met some of these people. Christians in some travels um, or had heard about them and so kind of had an understanding of who some of these people were but in, in, in really though he it was a very unfamiliar church 
So again, what are you going to get? What are you going to teach to an unfamiliar church? You're going to teach the gospel. It's like you know when I get invited to go preach somebody somewhere, and I'm like, what do what should I preach? What what do these people need? They need the gospel. Like we always need the gospel, even if we're believers, we need the gospel. We mm-hmm. always need the gospel. So that's why the Book of Romans is so gospel. It's it's the the defense of the gospel. So you have the gospel, and like Adam was saying in, in Romans one uh, through four, really, you know, we're saved by faith in Christ alone. Like, that is so defended there. Um, and then he moves into this, cert- this like, finality, this certainty, uh, uh, this assurance of our faith in, the, in Romans 5 and in Romans 6. And, 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 and really, it's really an amazing epistle. It's an amazing letter. Uh, these things are foundational um, to our faith. That's why we think that the doctrines of grace are so important. Like these are the things that Paul was teaching somebody that he's never met before. These are the things that he thinks they need. And they're so connected to the gospel, which is like, you know, people say, oh, this is, this is, this is divisive doctrine. This is stuff that's not, uh, you know, it's not fundamental to our faith. It doesn't really matter. Let's just not talk about it. Let's not lay it out. Let's not uh, create divisions over them, blah, 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 whatever it is. You've probably heard it before. Um, but it's like, sh- sure, there, there's Arminian Christians, absolutely. And you could say that they're not necessarily the orthodox, you know, like teachings on the Trinity, the nature of God, the nature of Christ, authority of Scripture, the gospel itself. But good grief, they're about as close as it gets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's about a, if you If you were to put a next doctrine underneath first-tier doctrine, it would be the doctrines of grace at a high second level. Like, the highest it can possibly go. Uh, and I think that certain, uh, if you want to put Arminianism on a spectrum, uh, you could say a more liberal side of Arminianism is really workspace salvation, in a sense. Like, I'm choosing... Or out, universalism. Or universalism. So there, it, it's so, like, Arminians are walking on thin ice, really. They're on this lake. It's very thin. They're okay. They're safe right now. But at some point... They could step into an area that has too thin of ice, and they're going to fall into the yeah the pit of or the the cold waters of of universalism or or you know works based faith blah 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 blah. So it's a, it's a very dangerous place to be, honestly. And it, it and any doctrine pushed to its extreme is it becomes, oh yeah it becomes heresy certainly really certainly fast. there's a there's a very bad form of Calvinism called hyper Calvinism, which we would say shouldn't even be called Calvinism because it's not. It's just some crazy, you know, extremist teachings. Nonetheless, um, let's talk about some scripture. Uh, I'm going to read a passage from Romans chapter 3, um, starting in can, verse 9. Can we start in chapter 1? Oh, let's start in chapter 1. Why not? Okay. <laughs> Because I, I got a couple of things to highlight yeah. in chapter one. We, I mean, we're not going to read all of chapters. You know, one it's and two probably likely that we'll make this a two-part podcast on the total depravity. <laughs> um, so I'm going to start in verse sixteen. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it is the righteousness. Or, sorry, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. For faith, or I'm sorry, from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I want to highlight verse 17 here. 
Because if there was one verse in the Bible that has had more impact on church history uh, since Jesus Christ um, ascended into heaven, it is Romans 1.17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the passage that caused Augustine to be converted. This is the passage that spurred Martin Luther's oh, it, conscience. It agonized him. He couldn't figure it out. Yep. And then finally when he did, it was like... Yep. This, this passage is responsible for Augustine's conversion and for the Reformation. It's uh, true. <clears throat> Augustine read this passage. He was not a believer. He read this passage, and because of that, he came to true faith. And this is, and then, and then from here, the very next passage. So, like, like the, the whole next part that we talk about is we start talking about total depravity. Right. It's all based on this idea that the righteous shall live by faith. Right. In the very next passage, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. And it is from this point on that Paul brings humanity before court almost. Yeah. And he lays out a prosecution against humanity. Yes. That uh, that hinges entirely and utterly destroys any holiness that mankind thinks that oh, it yeah. has. Oh, yeah. And he, he's, he's almost participating you could say he's writing in a way where he's almost participating in a dialogue or an argument with with people yeah uh so he in some sense he you, he seems like he's arguing with a jew uh, but then he brings in gentiles into the mix too into the into this argument because um, he's really trying to show that jew nor gentile n- you know neither are righteous right uh all are under wrath everyone is no one is godly no one is righteous at all yep and he's, he's totally forming this brilliant argument to show that every single person is sinful and under wrath. And you could say depraved. Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. Is there anywhere else you would like to hit on in Romans 1? Like we I were, mean, we could, we could spend a lot of time talking right, about Romans just, 1. But, you could just read through Romans 1. Like I said, this progression. Like, yeah. I mean, some of the things that, that you hit on, uh, you know, well, like verse 20, his in, his in, or actually verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. God has revealed himself. Uh, you know, so we start talking about things like general revelation. Yep. Chapter 2 talks about special revelation. You know, so the whole point being God has revealed himself. Some of the things that you highlighted earlier. Therefore God, verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Uh, And then because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. That's an indictment on mankind. Yep. Um. And then I think um, at the end here, verse 29, uh, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, 
uh, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's decree and they know those that practice such things deserve to die. They they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. If that doesn't sound like our society today, I don't know what does. Right. You know, the whole this whole concept of you do you, you go out and you do whatever you want. Yeah. Just don't hurt me when you do it, but, you know, you go and you do whatever you want, right, and I will encourage you. You can you can go and 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 you know it's okay if you if you sleep with somebody else's spouse because you're getting yours. I encourage you. They don't deserve that person anyway. You know, like I mean, just this whole thing, inventors of evil in verse in verse thirty. Um, Good it's, night. I mean, we could just keep going. We can right. go through chapter two, and and we'll definitely read some things from chapter three. Like, just read these chapters just read them and listen to what paul is saying yeah i mean Uh, i mean it's it's ridiculous we we like to tune these out because they they don't sound good but let me let me ask the listeners this question does this sound like uh like a, a version of mankind that is holy or does this sound like a version of mankind that is evil evil right i mean if 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 we're inventing evil, then very clearly, um, and it and it says in verse twenty nine, they are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, yep. covetousness, malice. I mean, it it goes on and on in these four verses at the end of chapter one. Yep, and then yeah, I mean, I think verse five is interesting too of chapter two. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath. For yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, mm-hmm. like we 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 live a life when we're separated from God that continually stores up wrath in a way like we're just we're just storing up wrath if we are unrepentant, impenitent, if we uh, if we're not you know regenerated by the work of the Holy Spirit in the gospel, we're just storing up wrath for the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment, His righteous judgment, like it's righteous. And good of him to punish us when that will be revealed and poured out on us. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, yeah. That's humbling. That's, like, that's, it's terrifying, mm-hmm. honestly. It's terrifying. Um, yeah. Chapter 2 really, really attacks um, Jewish, specifically yeah. Jewish um, arrogance. Yep. Um, in, 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 in relation or response to what Paul just said. Right, and and you hear people say this all the time. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. And why why did they say that? They said the Bible says don't judge me. Well, why did they say that? Because right here, Romans two one. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Right. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Well, that's the truth. Yeah. You know, uh, whenever we judge someone for doing something, all we're doing is looking in a mirror. Mm-hmm. And we have to be very careful, right? The, uh, the, the Jews thought because of their ethnicity, because they were the chosen, you know, uh, nation, they were God's people, that they were somehow exempt from, right, from you know, being bad or being right. wicked or being evil. They thought the Gentiles were the wicked, evil, you know, 
horrible ones, the evil ones. But he, Paul goes, don't judge, don't judge them. Look at you're doing the same things. Your heart is the same way. You're yeah. also guilty. You're also under wrath. Yep. You're you're you know you're also unholy and ungodly. So it's it's the same for the Jew and the Greek, the Jew and the Gentile. Yep. Verse nine. There, chapter two, verse nine. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, which, according to chapter one, is all of us. Yep. Uh, the the Jew first, and then the Greek. Yeah. So, all that will go all the way down to Romans three, starting in verse nine. Here, Paul starts to quote many uh, phrases from the Old Testament to to kind of build this case for man's depravity. Uh, starting in verse 9 of chapter 3, what then are we Jews? Any bi- okay, I'm going to re- say that because I kind of didn't look at punctuation. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, and Greeks are under sin, as it is written. Here's his quotations. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's like, good grief. You can't lay it out more clearly. Right. And... Like like you said, he's quoting the Old Testament. Most of what he's quoting is coming from Psalms. This is not a new idea. No. Uh, so Psalm 14, 1 through 3 is quoted here. Psalm 53, 1 through 3. Uh, he quotes Psalm 5, 9 here. Uh, <clears throat> Psalm 10, 7. Psalm 64, 3. Or Psalm 64, 3 and 4. Um, repeatedly um, quoting Old Testament passages. So he's, he's using Jewish scripture to to really argue against this idea that somehow anybody is righteous more than anybody else. Right. And take like take note of the explicit words used. None, not one, no one, you know. It's just like n- he's leaving no room for misunderstanding. It's like right. What, so just some people are not righteous? No, no, no one is. <laughs> right. And and you know, we we started very early in our conversation saying that the question to both the Calvin and the Arminianist, uh, the question that they start with is, can anyone seek, seek God. after God on their own? And, and what does three eleven say? No one seeks. No for one God. understands. No one seeks for God. And I, I wanna, I'm gonna just kind of maybe put a little bit of a parallel passage in here just to show you another dimension to this. Um, uh, Colossians chapter three. Uh, I have to find it now. Apparently, I don't know my Bible too well. I just get mixed up where these books are. Is Colossians before Galatians? I think so. No. No, it's after. Yeah, it's, it's after, after Ephesians. There it is. There it is. <laughs> Golly! <laughs> Listen to what he's saying, Paul's saying in, in the very first verse of chapter 3 of Colossians. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. It's like, if then you have been raised with Christ. If, if, if. Now you seek. You can't seek if you haven't been raised with Christ. Mm-hmm. It's like it's, there's a huge hinge there. This commandment to seek is hinging on the fact that you've been raised with Christ. Uh, that you've been in his death. That you've been in his life. That you've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. 
Like, that's huge. To seek God, you have to have been raised with him, which means you have to have been in his death on the cross. Your sins would have to have been punished, and that happened 2,000 years ago. That had to have already been done. Uh, you, you, like, there's all these things that are prerequisites for seeking after God. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, we don't have the ability to seek after God if he hasn't already done the work. Right. So yes, we. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give a little bit of a framework here. Uh, this was kind of developed by Saint Augustine, uh, um, you know, way back in the day in the third century. Uh, Adam was talking about Augustine how he was converted through Romans one seventeen. Uh, so we're gonna bring him up again, and he was. If you want to put a label on him, he was a Calvinist. <laughs> Twelve hundred years before Calvin. <laughs> right. The, uh, the doctrines are not new. Exactly. That's what I'm trying to say. It's a joke. It's a joke <laughs> that you know we don't follow Calvin. We follow these doctrines that we see in the Bible. People have been seeing these things clearly in Scripture for in every century mm -hmm. of church, you know, history. Um, so Augustine, really, what? He, he split mankind, you could say, or described mankind into four categories. Pre-fall man, post-fall man, reborn man, and glorified man. So if you think of those four categories, pre-fall man, only two people occupied that category, and that was Adam and Eve. They lived before the fall because they were the ones that you know fell, obviously. So when they lived before the fall, before they ate from the tree, uh, you could say they were they were. Able to sin and able to not sin, if that makes sense. They were able to sin. Obviously, we know they were because they did. And they were able to not sin because they actually lived for a period of time with no sin. They were born, they were created good. They were created in right standing with God. They were created pure. And so there was no sin in the world. So that those are two things that they were able to do. Able to sin, able to not sin. But then they sinned. So now humanity's cursed. Every single person is born, is conceived in sin, is conceived separated from God, is conceived as a child of wrath, uh, is born desiring the things of the flesh. We desire the things of the flesh. And we could, we'll probably go to Romans 8 too and, and quote, like, the flesh does not submit to God, it does not want God. Uh, when you're born to the flesh, you do not seek after God, Romans 3. Um, so now the post-fall man, which is every single person to, born after Adam and Eve, their children, uh, every single person, all the way up to us now, we are all born automatically post-fall men. Uh, and post-fall man is able to sin and unable to not sin, which is a double, double negative. Able to sin, unable to not sin. So all you do is sin. That's all you can do. That's all you want to do. That's all you desire to do. And, and you could say that you let's just let's just give the benefit of the doubt. Let's play devil's advocate a little bit and 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 say yes, you have free will, but your free will is totally constrained within your nature. And your nature as a post-fall man is to choose freely sin every single time. If that makes sense, all you want to do is sin. And what Augustine was trying to say, and what Jonathan Edwards really defended. Uh, uh, in the seven, early 1700s, is that our decisions that we make, if you want to say freely, are constrained or preceded by our desires. So I'm not going to choose anything that I don't desire, if that makes sense. And 
The post-fall man always desires sin, therefore he's always going to choose sin. Um, you're not going to choose something that you don't desire. Uh, and we see clearly that the, the man in the flesh, the flesh does not desire God, it does not submit to God, it does not want God. It's actually at enmity with God. It hates God. Um, so that's post-fall man. Then you have reborn man. And so this is where the Holy Spirit, by his sovereign will, uses the gospel message to regenerate a dead person's heart, a post-fall man's heart, uh, gives them a new heart, makes him a new creation, gives him new desires, gives him all the stuff, gives him faith, uh, and so now he has a new set of desires. The Holy Spirit gave him a new set of desires. Uh, that's called regeneration. Um, and now he has this new nature. He's now in the reborn man category. And so now he's, you could say he's back to the state of Adam and Eve where he's able to sin and, and able to not sin. Uh, but nonetheless, he gets this new nature with where now he actually has desires for God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has indwelled him and lives in him, gives him a new nature, gives him a new heart. Uh, Ezekiel, he takes the heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh. Um, the Spirit does that. The Holy Spirit does that through the gospel. So the uh, reborn man now has a new nature, which is can submit to God, can desire God, and it can seek after God. And so that's why... Uh, like Adam was saying, you you have these you try to interpret your experience of conversion, and it seems as though you made a choice. Uh, most of us would say that our intuition is that I chose God. And the reason why you f you have this intuition is because uh, you, your recollection of conversion was actually it came a actually came after the Spirit used the gospel message that you were hearing to regenerate your heart and give you a new heart and give you new desires. So though you don't like like have this, I guess, this clear understanding, oh, the Holy Spirit just entered into me. I now, you know, you don't really understand that. You have to go to Scripture to to, to be taught that's what happened. It's not like you know that intuitively that that happened. Uh, you have to be taught that, and that's what the Scripture teaches us. When you hear the gospel message, the Holy Spirit, if you're an elect, and we'll talk about election here coming up in a couple podcasts more specifically, uh, the Spirit will regenerate you and give you these new desires, and He will summon you to faith, call you to faith. You will want to come to faith. It's your desire. You want nothing more than to choose Christ, but it only comes after regeneration because you need a new nature. And then glorified man, to wrap it up, that is the man who, once Christ returns, is given a new body, uh, is given a mortal, imperishable body, a heavenly body, it's a physical body, but it's no longer corrupted by sin. And now your new, you could say your new nature is unable to sin uh, and able to not sin, which means that you are, you no longer can sin at all. You don't have a desire for it. You're no longer tempted by it. It's not even possible. Uh, but you could say that you're still free. You're not a robot, if you want to say that. But all your desires are always in perfect accordance with the will of God. You want to worship him. You want to be obedient to him. That is our state in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth. All we want is God perfectly. And so we, you could say we freely choose to worship him at his throne forever and ever and ever. And it's our supreme desire. It's our, we, it's our, you know, we're, we're filled with joy doing it. It's all we want to do. It's totally satisfying. It's, f it, it's fullness of joy. That's our heavenly state. So those are the four categories that Augustine, Augustine really really talked about a lot. Edwards really defended it. John Piper 
you know, likes to talk about this stuff too. And uh, R.C. Sproul, <laughs> uh, the book Chosen by God, displays that, that framework. Um, but nonetheless, that's kind of, uh, that's why we are unable to seek God. Because we are constrained in this nature of only seeking the things of the world. Would you like to add anything, Adam? No, I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, people may still doubt, uh, but I ask, uh, you know, I ask people who doubt to read Romans 3 and what does it say? Yeah. Um, verse 11, very clearly, I mean, I'm not making it up. It says, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Verse 10, if you include verse 10, as it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Right. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So no one does good. Like you you mentioned the language before. If you jump down to verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Verse 23 is the nail in the coffin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 23. So, so we stop there and we're like, okay, well, <clears throat> I'm willing to concede that, that Romans 3 is very explicit that none of us seek after God. So then what hope do we have? Verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Absolutely. So we are left with nothing but a gift. Exactly. God alone is righteous. That is the whole point of Romans 1 through 3. I mean, that's why that's why we when I when I talk about how the doctrines of grace push me into the deepest forms of worship because when I really think about my salvation, I realize I didn't even choose God. Like, I was totally depraved. I was dead in my sin. All I wanted to do was pursue the flesh and store up more wrath. That's all I wanted. That's all my desires were. Uh, but God gave me a new heart by his choice, by his sovereign will, made me alive in Christ, gave me this faith as a gift, gave me righteousness through faith. He gave me everything. So when we talk about grace— or say by grace, like really grace is, it's, it's, it's unimaginable. Like this gift is unimaginable. We can't even comprehend how amazing of a gift it is. I did absolutely nothing. So when I worship God, it's like, oh my goodness, I did nothing to deserve this. And you gave me this, this incomprehensible gift. Like it's crazy. And it's just like, it brings me to tears in worship. It's like, oh my goodness, you saved me. A wretch like me, I don't deserve it. I did nothing. I didn't reason myself to this. I didn't come to, you know, believe this by my own willpower. I did nothing. I mean, 
good night. <laughs> it can't right. be any clearer. Okay, I'm going to read another verse. We're not saying that man does not have a will. We talked about this. Man does have a will. We make choices that we're accountable for. And if you want to say that we have free will, you can say we have free will, but free will is not a, an autonomous will. We are not autonomous. We're not uh, self-determining. We, we are not the determiners of our destiny. Uh, either, you know, let's, let's just say, let's, let's label it complete free will. Complete free will. Either God has complete free will or we do. We, both can't be true. Either mm -hmm. God controls everything or he doesn't. You know, right, right. It's like people, I, I think one of the things, one of the arguments that people make is, well, we very clearly have free will. Well, nobody's arguing that, but are, are you trying to say that man's free will is equal to God's? Because that is not scriptural. No, I'm not asking, I'm not saying this of you. Oh, I right? know. I'm saying this against the argument right. that, because, uh, that's the argument that people go back to is, well, mankind has a free will. We have the ability to choose. Well, we very clearly, according to Romans 1 through 3, don't have the ability to choose good. Right. So we know from Romans 1 through 3 that our free will is limited. Limited. And Constrained. It's not, and it's not God that limits it. We do. We limit yeah. ourselves. Right. We limit ourselves because we have because we've sinned. Because we've or, sinned. Well, I mean, I guess you could argue that Adam limited right. us. Right. And we were in Adam right. when he sinned. And but you know, because of this nature that we've inherited, our free will is limited. And our free will was always limited because our free will was never we we, we were always we under have, God. Yeah, we've been created in the image of God, but we do not have the same power as God. No, we're not. We're not God. Yeah, our we're our finite. sovereignty that that we have because we were created in the image of God does not match the sovereignty of God. Right. And I think that's where uh, people just don't uh, necessarily think that all the way through. When you start to ask these questions, right? Um, people begin to balk. Then, like if if somebody comes up to you and says, "Well," I have a free will. Are you saying I don't? And I'm like, no, but are you saying that your free will is equal to God's free will? Right. Or over uh, and above it, in yeah. a sense? Like, I mean, it, and that's, and, and the other thing that we have to understand is it's not like God's free will isn't limited. God's free will is also limited. God, by his nature, you could right. say. He, but, yes. God cannot do evil. God cannot sin. God cannot do these things. Right. God, uh, God also created a, a universe that has certain rules. And yes, God God can break those rules, but they always they always have a way that makes sense. Sure, you know, like um, the world is not the Earth is not going to suddenly start rotating backwards, and there not be any consequences. Right, you know, um, there there are there are physical rules that govern the the creation. Mm -hmm. um, so how how God's sovereign will, um, which controls all things that come to pass you know the everything works out to the you know according to the counsel of god's will that's ephesians one everything um how that harmonizes with man's will is a mystery we don't see the harmony in scripture mm -hmm. but we don't need to see the harmony because we got to realize that again we we are finite and i know that sounds like a sometimes we just people think oh it's just a scapegoat oh I just throw out the finite scapegoat again like oh you know mm -hmm. oh we're finite like, no, but really, think about it. Like, seriously, think about it. Like, God is infinite. It means he has infinite knowledge. And, it, like, he knows all things infinitely. And we are finite, which means there's an infinite amount of things that separate our knowledge from God's. 
like it's not like God knows a million things and we know one thing, and so now we can we can actually count the the distance or the amount of things that you know separates our knowledge from God's. No, we have a finite, countable amount of things we know. Let's just say that God has an infinite. It's not even. It's in a whole different realm. It's not even comparable. You can't compare it with God's knowledge. So there's things obviously that have to be a mystery to us. Mm-hmm. If if there was no mystery, then either God is not you know, omnipotent and knows all things or omniscient um, or or we are. So one of the two, like, it's either bringing God down or bringing us up. Right, which is addressed in Romans 10. And, exactly. You know, we'll save that whole discussion for uh, for when we talk about election. Right, because... so I just want to read one verse. Uh, where is it? I think it... Okay, well, starting in John... Chapter 1, verse 12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, listen, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Like, the Apostle John here writing this, literally, give, one, he clearly says that man has a will, but two, he really just kind of, he seals up every possible, you know, misunderstanding by saying we're born, and, and, Literally two chapters later in chapter 3, Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you, you must be born again to see the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again. Uh, and that we see here two chapters earlier, uh, you're born not by the will of the flesh nor the will of man, but, but of God, but by the will of God, really. So it's God's will to cause us to be born again. And we must be born again to see the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus says in, in, you know, in John chapter 3, Verses 3 through 8, like the spirit, he moves around like the wind. You don't know where he goes. And really what he's saying is you're not going to know who God decides to regenerate. Mm -hmm. You're not going to know. You preach the gospel to every creature. And when you could say the spirit moves like the wind through this person's heart and regenerates them. Great. You're not going to know when that's going to happen. Right. You might preach the gospel to 100 people and every single one of them rejects Christ. And then the 101st one, the spirit moves Boom! Regenerates them because they were an elect. That's how. That's how the. That's what the Bible's telling us is is happening here. Uh, it's it's contrary to our fleshly intuition, but we should expect the Bible to rub against our fleshly intuition. Obviously. Mm-hmm. So these things, when you really think about them, they they start to become obvious. It's like if I'm really in the flesh, if I'm born in the flesh, born separated from God, born hating God, born totally finite in understanding, then. It would make sense that I'm going to learn some things about reality when I read the, right. the, the source of truth, the Bible. Right. Like, if I think I'm going to come to the Bible and just see a bunch of stuff that I already know, like, are you dumb? <laughs> well, yeah, and I, I think, um, you know, people who, people who rub against the doctrine of total depravity um, rub against it. You know, like like we talked about, because well, I'm not I'm not a bad person, I, and but yet you are bad enough to recognize that you needed a savior. Yeah, uh, and that's that's all that we're asking you to realize here is you already accepted your your sinful stance before before God. So now we're just asking you to realize. How far away from God we all we, are! We truly were, were. yeah. Uh, and 
you know, again, I mean, Romans just lays it out so clearly. Absolutely. Uh, and it's it's not until we can remove our pride that tries to defend ourselves or tries to compare ourselves to other people. Right. Uh, and that we can then look at how sinful we were. And it leads, like you said earlier, to more worship. Because once you have a right understanding of how horrible we are as people, uh, then then you can really get to a point where you can begin to thank Christ for the sacrifice that, that he made. Because it's not like Christ saved in a good person. Right. You know, like, that's the thing. Like, people, people say to me sometimes, they're like, oh, well, I'm a good person. You're a good person. You'll be fine. And my response is always, nobody's a good person. Right. And they kind of look at you, and I'm like, when was the last time you did something bad? Right. And then, and then they realize that we all inherently understand this doctrine. Right. Uh, it's just we don't want to accept the part of it yeah. that says that no one seeks after God. Right. Because we want to hold ourselves up as holy and say, well, yeah. but I, I sought God. Yeah. I, but uh, yeah. that's not what Romans 3, it's not what Psalms says. It's not what the Bible says at all. Yeah. Through and through. Through and through. Um, it reminds me of one of my favorite Babylon Bee articles. Uh, after owner tells a uh, Calvinistic dog, who's a good boy? Dog responds, no one's a good boy. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. So that we'll have that, that funny uh, little bit there, kind of end our discussion on total depravity. Um, hopefully uh, you don't hate our guts, but, you know, you might. Um, but we really implore you to, to search the scriptures. This isn't about me. This isn't about what Sam or Adam thinks. This isn't about our opinions. It has nothing to do with us. Uh, it has everything to do with what, what God has revealed to us through his uh, word, which is authoritative. It, it reveals true truth to us, us about reality, about our actual state, about what God actually has done for us. Uh, I don't know everything. I can't, but the Bible reveals stuff to me, and it's true, and I can accept it, and I can trust it, and it's trustworthy. Um, so this isn't about me. Don't believe these things because I believe it. Don't believe these things because Adam believes it. Don't believe these things because your pastor believes it. Be a good Brian and go search the scriptures. Uh, search them and you'll see like Martin Luther saw, like Augustine saw, like so many others have seen. These things are clearly defined and defended in scripture. Um, so I hope that that's your heart, like that you go to scripture and you submit to God's authority. Yeah. But thank what if you. people have questions? Well, that's good. I mean. No, but like, like what, what do they do? If like somebody's listening to this and they're like, oh, I just don't get it. I need help. Oh, oh yeah. Questions. Um, on the website, <laughs> Preach and Persuade, if that's where you're finding this podcast, at the very bottom of the homepage, there is a button that you can click that will direct you to my email and you can email a question and we'll answer it uh, on the next podcast, hopefully. Um, so hopefully I remember to check that email. <laughs> but that's, that's actually a way that you can do that, uh, ask, ask questions. So sweet. I hope you enjoyed this episode and tune in for the next one on uh, unconditional election, the you. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Bye.